Buongiorno. Se avete le vostre Bibbie stamattina vi invito di prenderli, alzarsi a piedi se potete ed aprire le vostre Bibbie a Prima Corinzi, capitolo 14. Leggiamo insieme Prima Corinzi, capitolo 14, dal versetto 1 al versetto 12. La parola di Dio per noi stamattina. Desiderate ardentemente l'amore, non tralasciando però di ricercare i doni spirituali, principalmente il dono di profezia. All right, just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I don't have the gift of tongues. I had to apply myself to learning that language. Um, but uh, <clears throat> Linda and I are preparing uh, to, uh, to go on a trip. I'll be preaching in Italy in about a month. And so uh, at our, our church plant that we're a, a supporter of, a partner of, and so you can be praying for us. We're actually, Linda and I will both be going uh, in mid-May, May, May uh, 10th to the, the 30th, uh, while a lot of other, other people are heading to Israel. Uh, we're primarily going to be part of a, a pastor-to-pastors conference uh, down in Serbia, uh, which will include pastors throughout the Balkans, um, pastors that are working uh, in very difficult areas with very little resources. And so pray that we might be an encouragement to them. Uh, that is our goal. We've also just brought on another, uh, not on the, on the wall yet because I don't have a good picture, but another couple, uh, Novica, Novica and Tamara, and they are down in Zaicha, Serbia, where the conference will be. So we'll have a chance to connect with them and others uh, in northern Italy. We'll spend some of the time there in northern Italy where we once served and hopefully be an encouragement to them as well. <clears throat> so anyway, the Italian maybe will serve as a bit of a, an object lesson for our text this morning, but let's, let's try that again. So from the top so that I do not leave this without interpretation. Good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to take them, stand as you are able and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14 verses 1 through 12. And we will read that together. 1 Corinthians Chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. God's word for us today. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. 
so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for uh, just our time together this morning in worship. Lord, we thank you for the music we could sing, the truths that we have uh, spoken to one another through our voices as we have sung uh, hymns and songs and spiritual songs to one another. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your word that we will look at this morning. And Lord, we, we thank you for, for prayer. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. And Lord, we just thank you for these things that we can do together as a church as we seek to grow more and more into the likeness and the image of Christ. Father God, as we look at your word this morning, Lord, we pray that you would, you would use it to sanctify us. Lord, would you use your word in our lives Lord, that you might be glorified more and more as you build up this church, us as Valley Bible Church, more and more into the image of your Son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. If you'll recall, Paul is writing in his letter to the church in in Corinth. Uh, If you're visiting us for the first time or if you're relatively new, um, that's what we do. We go through a book of the Bible at a time, and we're in 1 Corinthians. This isn't just an arbitrary, arbitrary passage for this morning, um, but we're, we're preaching through for a reason because it, it requires us to address all the counsel of God, and, and that is our practice. And so that's what we're doing. And, and Paul has been writing to this church in Corinth, and he has been, been a, a addressing issues in the church and answering questions that they've written. And in chapter 12, he begins to answer uh, this, the, the questions and this discussion on spiritual gifts. And then he ends chapter 12 uh, with these words, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you still a more excellent, a still more excellent way. And then he launches into this chapter on love, on love. And it, as we've gone through it, perhaps like me, you've been convicted because there's so much to this uh, this incredible thing called love and its attributes. And, and now as we begin to go into chapter 14, we see that he transitions back, transmissions back to talking about spiritual gifts and this topic again, and he'll talk about it throughout the entirety, really, of, well, much of, uh, of chapter 14, along with some other issues. But right off the bat this morning, I just want to address a couple of things about our time this morning in the Word. And the first is this, that there are three imperatives in this passage, and two come at the very beginning, and one comes at the very end. And... They are what we've used as the, the points, basically the points that are in your outline. And if you're an outline guy or a note taker, it might drive you nuts because we're going to hit the first two pretty quick. Then we're going to have a lot of space. And if you might not be creative with your space. And then we'll hit the last one at the end. So if it seems like a long time, there's also going to be uh, more applications toward the end of the message. So don't worry, we're getting there. Um, okay, I'm a note taker. I like to know that information. Maybe you're not. But there you go. Uh, secondly, Pastor, Pastor Ben already covered uh, our position on spiritual gifts, especially uh, in reg- with regard to those gifts that are in the position that's called uh, cessationism or, or the, the cessationist view of spiritual gifts, um, which is what we teach here. We, we recognize that there are brothers and sisters in Christ with varying views on that. And so um, just want, want to state that up front. I'm not going to get really into it. Um, if you want, go back uh, online. Uh, January, you can start see where we started, First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, and you can watch those uh, on your own time, and uh, and hopefully understand that better if you weren't here. <clears throat> but I do think it's worth us just defining a few terms this morning as we go through this passage. And the first is spiritual gifts. What do we mean by spiritual gifts? 
And uh, Ben, uh, Pastor Ben defined it this way a while back. A spiritual gift is a God-given ability to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. A God-given ability to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. Moving on from that, two additional um, ones, if you're writing those down. Sorry. Okay. Uh, two additional ones. Uh, tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And we see tongues as a God-given ability to speak in human languages that are previously unlearned or unknown to the speaker. God-given ability to speak in human languages that are previously unlearned or unknown to the speaker. We see that because every time we see the proper use of tongues in the New Testament, we see that it is a human language that is present. The interpretation of tongues then is that God-given ability to interpret the words of someone speaking in tongues. That's the interpretation of tongues, the ability to interpret the words of someone speaking in tongues. And the assumption there is that you have not applied yourself to the learning of that language. This is a divinely appointed and enabled gift that you are given um, for that purpose. And the third or fourthly, I guess, prophecy. Prophecy. Prophecy can be um, foretelling, like we see in the Old Testament and even in the apostolic area, where they're, they're pointing forward, they're proclaiming the truths of God, saying, thus saith the Lord, because they have received that directly from the Lord, and they prophesied that. It can also be foretelling, which is taking the truths of God's Word and then proclaiming them, and that's really what we see uh, more in the New Testament. And so prophecy, uh, this is a, a bit of an explanation from, uh, from Thistleton in his commentary, but he says this, here, in this passage, in this context, prophecy amounts to healthy preaching, proclamation, or teaching, which is pastorally applied for the appropriation of gospel truth and promise. So, healthy preaching, proclamation, or teaching, which is pastorally applied for the appropriation of gospel truth and promise. Or, you might say, a God-given ability to proclaim the truth of Scripture for, for exhortation, for consolation for edification we're going to see paul use those words even uh, as he describes prophecy and it's 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 profitability here a little bit later so paul begins with this first imperative pursue love pursue love and spring is upon us as we've already mentioned um, birds and the bees come out if you've got wildflowers springing up in random places you didn't know you had them in your yard perhaps things like that Sometimes it's a time of year when, when our young people become a little bit Twitterpated or infatuated with one another. It's like they come out of hibernation and they realize, oh, there's other people out there, um, right? And it's amazing if you spend much time with middle school boys, maybe even younger high school boys, how quickly verses like greet one another with a holy kiss maybe, you know, come to their minds. It's like, can't memorize anything, but you remember that one. Or pursue love, uh, you know, is in our context. That's not what Paul is talking about. Obviously, he's not talking about, oh, we should all be pursuing love and relationships. No, he's talking about pursuing the love that he has just talked about. Paul has just finished this incredible chapter on love that really demonstrates to us the height and the depth and the breadth and the width, you know, all the, all the dimensions of, of love that's really, really hard for us to fathom. And we can take that sometimes, and I think we can... We can go, oh man, that's talking about God's love. But we looked at that from the context. No, it's talking about the love that we should have for one another. We go, wow, well, that's, that's not possible. So let's just settle for an empty shell. We'll settle for part of it. 
I'm okay. But that's not what Paul is, is saying. No, we're supposed to pursue that, that kind of love that Paul has described. It's that kind of love that we should, that we should have for one another. When, when the world looks in by God's grace with us loving in that way, they should go, wow, those are disciples of Jesus because of the love that we have for him and for one another. I'm not sure how many of you are hunters in the room. I know we've got a few hunt various different things in our church. Um, we've got some fishermen. We've got some hunters. <clears throat> this word pursue is, is, is the idea of a hunter trailing his prey. You know, you're on the hunt. And on the hunt now probably means something a little different than it did in these times. I think for us on the hunt is like tree stand early in the morning, really still, really quiet, you know, waiting, 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 you know, nice gear, high-powered rifle, good binoculars or a scope, get it from a long way off if you're a good shot, right? It's not really what's, what's implied here. I'm not saying that's not legitimate hunting. Now, I know things have, have changed, but, but this is talking about hunting with a knife or a, or a bow or, or a spear, right? A little bit different, a little bit different to hunt in that way. And I know lots of stories, maybe you've heard them, maybe you've thought about them, but, uh, but of missionaries who uh, go out and hunt, like, for example, with the Yanomami in Venezuela, and you get the missionary out there with his, you know, good gear on and his good boots and running through the jungle trying to keep up with his, you know, modern weapons. And then you got the, the Yanomamo who's, you know, about this height, like Linda, my wife, or somebody like that. And, and they've got these, this big bow and these long arrows and they're running through the jungle and the missionaries can't keep up, right? It's everything they can do to even, you know, catch your breath. And, and they're on the hunt and they're looking for the prey. When they see it, they've got, to, they've got to take their shot, and they don't carry a lot of arrows with them because they're big arrows, and they're little people. So you have to, you have to hit your shot. You've got to take it when it's, when it's right, and, and they're pursuing the prey, and it's important because if, you, you know, if we don't go out and, and, and get whatever we're going to get, if John doesn't go out and get a bunch of ducks, right, he's still going to be able to eat that night, right? When you're in the jungle, that may be your meal. You may go hungry, Right? Your family, your village, your tribe, your people may go hungry if you don't catch that prey. And so it's important. Life could depend on it. And that's the picture, the idea here of, of pursuing love. It's a pursuit that we have to have we, because life depends on it. Our life as a, a church and our growth together as a body depends on that kind of love. And so we should pursue it in that sort of way. And so a lesson for us, pursue love. I know, it's cheating. I'm going to do that a couple times because it's the verse. But pursue love. And I encourage you um, to return back to 1 Corinthians 13 regularly. Look at it. Evaluate how you're loving those in, in, in your life, in your home, those people in the church. Are you loving in the way that is described there? And if not, maybe confess that. But, but then ask God for help because you're going to need help to love in that way. The love that is described there is not something we can do on, on our own. We're going to need that kind of help. But then pursue that kind of love for one another. The second imperative is to desire, to desire earnestly spiritual gifts or earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Paul says, yet earnestly, or yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. 
And again, Paul is picking back up where he left off in, in 12 verse 31 when he said, earnestly desire the greater gifts. He's using some similar language there. Um, but I believe that what Paul is, is, is meaning as he goes through um, this, this passage, right? We ended with that kind of desire, you know, earnestly desire greater gifts. What, what are those greater gifts? For the Corinthians, they're going, oh yeah, what are the greater gifts? Well, tongues must be the greater gift. And what other ones could be greater gifts, you know? What are the awesome gifts that everybody wants? But I really believe that what, as we go through this, we see that but what really what Paul means by greater gifts are simply, is simply this. The greater gifts are the ones that edify the church. And really that's all the gifts when they're used properly. That the greater gifts are those that edify the church. Before we get further ahead of ourselves than we ought to, because we're going to see that as we go through, Paul makes it clear that, that though he is emphasizing this need to pursue love, he's not telling them to do so at the expense of their spiritual gifts. Okay? The temptation might be, well, if we're supposed to love like this, that's the key to everything. And so Paul tells them, no, desire spiritual gifts. Instead, he isn't proposing that they just sit around in some now euphoric, love-induced like state, you know, mumbling words to some song together. No, that they desire these gifts and they desire to use them. I was uh, speaking with Elio, just making some arrangements. Elio Vanelli, he's our, uh, our go partner that's in Italy, the Italian guy. And uh, I was speaking to him this week to make plans, understand where we were going to stay when we got there and a few other things. And, uh, and he coincidentally is starting today, uh, probably just preached a little bit ago because they're nine hours ahead, but they meet in the evening. Um, but he uh, starting 1 Corinthians, and he's a little more ambitious. He's planning on being through it. Quite a bit quicker than we are, but anyway, but uh, but First Corinthians and and he uh, just starting and he reminded me as we were just discussing the passages we we're going to be talking about that right there at the beginning of First Corinthians, verse four through seven, that, that Paul says something to the Corinthians there. He says this: I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The problem in Corinth wasn't a lack of spiritual gifts. Paul says they didn't lack in any of those gifts. Rather, it was an unbalanced and appropriate fixation on one gift, particularly a, sh a showy gift that everyone wanted to have, or at least that everyone wanted everyone else to think they had. In fact, it was a gift that Paul will later tell them wasn't even focused on believers, but unbelievers, the gift of tongues. Glossolalia, um, or glossolalia, uh, defined by uh, Encyclopedia Britannica as utterances approximating words and speech, usually produced during states of intense religious experience. This is not uncommon in pagan religions today around the world. Also would not have been uncommon in occult practices in the Greco-Roman world, and most certainly in Corinth. And the gift of tongues would have looked very much like that without interpretation, without being used in its proper way. We've already seen in, in our study of 1 Corinthians that the church in Corinth was being influenced by their culture. They had questions about, about food sacrificed to idols and other things that Paul tells them that they should not have any part in. And it, it's not explicitly clear 
But it's possible that, that this glossolia, these ecstatic utterances, had crept into the church as a way for people to make themselves look more spiritual, because that seemed to be what was happening. For, for in, in pagan occult practice, that was a, a height, a pinnacle of spirituality, a heightened sense of spirituality, uh, a religious um, spirituality that they would speak in these utterances. Regardless, Paul has already told them in, in, in chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, that they had a variety of gifts. They didn't all have just one gift. And then in, in 12 through 20, uh, 29 through 30, he, he presses the point that they don't all have the same gifts. He says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All, are not, or all do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All, are not inter- all do not interpret, do they? And so Paul encourages them. Of course, the, the answer there is, is no, rhetorically, to all of those. That everyone does not do all of those things. And so Paul encourages them. Specifically, to desire that they would prophesy. He says, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. As we'll see in in verses 2 through 5, Paul lists a number of reasons why prophecy is greater or better than tongues. Paul continues in verses 2 and 3, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Speaking in tongues doesn't do any good for people who don't know the language, but but only for God, because God knows all things, right? And so he would be the only one who could profit. And so whatever is being said remains a mystery. The one who prophesies, on the other hand, Paul says, speaks to men for edification, and exhortation, and consolation. So prophecy is greater than tongues because it edifies or builds up. It exhorts or encourages, urges toward something, and it consoles, it comforts. Furthermore, Paul says in verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. I looked and looked this week, and I didn't have a ton of time because a few other things crept in. But I could not find anywhere in the Bible, looking through every instance that I, that I, I think I covered them all, uh, where edification or edify is used, that root word. I could not find any other reference to the idea of edifying oneself. Much like the idea of, of loving oneself really isn't in the Bible. I know we could say that it is here, but really I don't believe that Paul is using this as a positive thing. That idea of building ourselves up. Yes, we are to struggle and to toil, to grow in godliness, to grow in our sanctification and through the, the power of the Holy Spirit and exercise of, of spiritual disciplines, reading God's Word, memorizing and meditating on it, gathering together like we do on Sunday mornings, praying, and, and a number of other spiritual disciplines, serving, giving. We grow in Christ's likeness. We grow in our sanctification. But all the while, we recognize that it is God at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He alone gives us that desire, that will to do those things, and then empowers us for that 
type of growth. The statement that one who speaks in tongues edifies himself or builds himself up, I do not believe is Paul's statement on the benefit of the use of tongues, but rather an admonition. Tongues in the context of worship, the worship gathering, especially without interpretation, could have only served the purpose of making the one speaking look more spiritual. The one who prophesies, on the other hand, Paul says, builds up the church. So again, prophecy is greater than tongues because prophecy builds up the church, but tongues only builds up itself, or builds a person up, builds up self, rather. Continuing on in verse 5, Paul says, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be, may receive, rather, edifying. Paul says he wishes that they could all speak in tongues, but even more that they would prophesy. And why? Because prophesying is greater than tongues, because tongues would require interpretation, and prophecy does not. Prophecy would be directly applied for the building up of the church. As pastors, we are committed to the preaching and teaching of God's Word because it is the preaching and teaching of God's Word that edifies, that exhorts, that consoles, that builds up the body of Christ as we proclaim God's Word and so that we are built together as a household of God. And so prophecy is greater than tongues because it is clearly understood and therefore profitable to the hearer. And we'll see that in verse 6 and later in verse 9 as well. Paul moves on in verse 6, using himself as an example. Paul says, but now, brethren, if I came to you or come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Now, I don't have the gift of tongues. I've admitted that already. But what good would it have profited Valley Bible Church if I had continued on in Italian this morning? Maybe a few of you would have gotten a few words because you know some Latin. Maybe you know some Spanish, and so it would have carried over, right? But would you have been edified? Would you have been encouraged, exhorted? Would you have left encouraged in, in what you have to do this morning? No, probably some of you would have gotten up and walked out. Probably most of you would have gone up and walked out and thought I was just nuts up here if I kept carrying on. The safety team might have removed me. Who knows? But anyway, that's Paul's point here uh, to some degree. Paul, who, who is an apostle, right, who has the gift of tongues. He says he speaks in tongues other places, right? Paul, who's an apostle, he says, if I come to you and I speak in tongues, what will the prophet you? And the rhetorical answer there is nothing. On the other hand, if he spoke to them in intelligible language by way of revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching, then it would be profitable to them as it had been when he came to them. Back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul describes how he addressed them when he came. He says this, he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 
and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Paul doesn't say, when I came to you, I came and spoke in tongues. No. In fact, he would have said that. Later he's going to say, what would it profit you if I did that? Nothing. Revelation, knowledge, prophecy, teaching. For Paul, all better than tongues if he comes and speaks in, in, in language that is understood. Language is important. Our friend Dr. Edie Burns, if you spend much time around him, you'll hear him say at some point, words have meanings, ideas have consequences. And words have meaning. It's true. Language is important. In verses 7 through 11, Paul continues to emphasize the importance of using intelligible language over the use of tongues with three examples. They're surrounded by, or they're surrounding a key question that he asks there in the middle. Unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? Let's read that. 7 through 11. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, and producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? If a bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. First example is that of the flute or the harp, which Paul calls lifeless or, or literally soulless things. Sorry if you're a flautist or a, a harp player. No, it's not, he's not meaning that. He's not calling them lifeless like in the playing of them. He's, uh, he's calling them that because they're inanimate ob- objects and he's, they require someone else to manipulate them to make sound. And he says if a flute or a harp produced only one sound, what, what good would that be? Ding, 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 ding. Not very good, right? I'm not a musician really, so there you go. That's about all you get. Um, but if the, if the music team got up here this morning... And every one of them only played one note. Or what if they all sounded exactly the same, all the instruments up here? It would be hard to distinguish one from the other, wouldn't it? But that's, that's not the point of different kinds of instruments, is that they produce different, distinct sounds. And that's uh, led me down a bit of a rabbit hole this week. I was trying to figure out if, it's, if there is any musical piece out there that somebody has tried to compose using only one note. <clears throat> the answer is no. Um, the closest thing uh, is by, uh, by a, a, a Hungarian, I believe he's Hungarian, um, a composer, uh, Georgi Ligeti. I don't know if anybody's familiar with him, uh, but he wrote a piece in his uh, masterpiece called Musica Ricercata. The piece uh, at the beginning, the very beginning, is called Sostenuto, Misurato, Prestissimo. And the piece is, is composed entirely of one, of one pitch class, A. Okay, so it's not one note, it's multiple, uh, he uses different octaves. It's really interesting. It's worth listening to. So look it up if you want to. Um, but even in that piece, he ends it with a letter D. Or not a letter D, you know, the, the key D. And so I'm not a musician, like I said. 
But anyway, it's an interesting piece. You can look it up. That's the closest I could find. But the, that's, the point is, is that that's, it doesn't make any sense to only use one note in a piece of music. The next example is in verse 8, and is that of a bugle or a battle horn. He says that, how will somebody know they're called to battle if the sound isn't a distinct sound? I don't know if there's any other Lord of the Rings fans in here. I like Lord of the Rings. I especially like the books. Movies are good, though. Peter Jackson did a pretty good job. Anything else I'm not really sure about. But in those, there's a distinct sound you hear. When a battle's beginning or there's a call to battle. And it's, there's actually like 14 different ones if you want to nerd out about it. Maybe only 13. It depends. There's one of them that's kind of iffy. But anyway, the point is when you hear the battle horn sounding, I'm not going to make the noise. But anyway, the battle horn sounding, that, that there's a call to battle. There's a distinct sound. Something's happening. The movie's about to get intense. And they're fun to watch because there's these epic battle scenes. We don't really have that today for us. But the same principle could be true of a tornado siren or an air raid siren. It makes a specific sound. Or a, a fire truck, an ambulance, a police car. They have a specific siren lets you know, pull over, get out of the way, whatever it may be. Even an ice cream truck. There's a distinct sound, isn't there? Right? And each one of those sounds is there for purpose that we would hear it and we would think of a call to action, some sort of thing we must do. Take cover, find shelter. Clear the road, get your wallet and get ice cream, whatever it is, right? There's a distinct sound. Even those sounds have purpose. And Paul's point is that, that the bugle or the battle horn, if it doesn't make a distinct sound, who would know what it's supposed, they're supposed to do? Paul's third example is a human one. He says there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world. And he's right. There are a great many kinds of languages. There are over 7,000 languages uh, in the world, and many, many dialects as well. Guess what? They're all spoken to convey meaning. That's what they're all there for. And if you don't know the language, when you're speaking to someone that they speak, Paul says, you will be to them like a barbarian, or they will be like a barbarian to you. He's not talking about Conan the barbarian. He's talking about uh, the, the, the Greek term for, for barbarian, the Roman term the, in the Roman Greco world, they, they saw foreigners as, as being people that didn't speak well or write. And it, it's really an onoma, on a poetic word that comes from that idea of repeating bar, 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 because that's what they felt like foreigners sounded like. Okay? And so that was the idea there for barbarian. Of course, the, the point being that if we can't understand each other, how will we convey anything? We will just sound this noiselessness if we can't understand what somebody else is saying. So some lessons for us before we move to our final verse this morning. <clears throat> First, speak plainly. Speak plainly. It's a practical principle. If others don't know what you're talking about, what good is it? This one hits home for... For me, perhaps for other nerds out there, um, when you geek out about a certain subject and you know something about it and you start talking with other people and they glaze over because they don't know what you're talking about or maybe theological terms, I, that's about the only area that I kind of um, maybe know more than other people, not, not a lot of people. There are people that know way more than me. But anyway, the point is this, that, that it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use biblical and theologically rich language. We should use that. But we should be willing to, to explain that to people as well, to, to explain what we mean. 
gospel, considering our audience. But it also goes both ways. The flip side uh, is this. When you don't understand something, ask. More often than not, I'm guilty of this, that, and maybe you've been there, happens to me often, you're in a conversation with a few people, and they start talking, talking about a subject that you don't really know much about, or you only know very little about, and it's clear that they both know a lot more about it, and they start talking back and forth, and they get into this discussion, and they look over at you and say, what do you think, Caleb? And you go, oh yeah, right? But you got no idea what they're talking about, Right? But we shouldn't do that, right? We should, we should be, be honest uh, when, when, somebody, uh, when somebody's speaking about something we don't understand. Ask. Ask for an explanation, especially when it comes to spiritual things and in the church. Like we, have, we can have a temptation to use big words or, or Christian words, terminology, that may be biblical, but still an opportunity for us to speak clearly and also to ask when we don't understand. Another one, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. God has given each one in this room, if you are a, a believer in Jesus, he has given you a spiritual gift, a gift for the common good. And I'm confident that like in the church in Corinth, we are lacking in, in no gift, no gift that we need for the, the building up of the body of Christ here today. What if you don't know your gift? Maybe that's a question you have. So a couple of practical ways that you can you can maybe begin to, to try to pin that down or figure that out. The first one is pray. Pray. Next slide. There we go. Sorry. Pray. Ask God to reveal to you how he has supernaturally gifted you. After you've done that, you can ask other believers around you. When we first began uh, this discussion on spiritual gifts in, in our life group back, back in January, but uh, somebody in our life group was uh, went, oh, great. What does that mean for me? I don't have a spiritual gift. And several people were like, what? Yes, you do. And we we're like, you have this gift. And they were like, oh, really? We're like, yeah, you don't see it. And we had this discussion. And it was I, I hopefully encouraging for them to discover, well, maybe I am gifted in this area. I hadn't thought about it because they were, they were just doing it. But it wasn't necessarily something that was natural in their personality and their gifting, but it was something that we could see that they were doing to serve the body of Christ. So ask those around you. Someone may see you already gifted in a certain area. And then thirdly, get involved. Get involved. If you don't know what your gifting is, all right, jump in somewhere. Sometimes you don't know until you try. I'm not a teacher. I hear that all the time. Well, I'm not a teacher, not, you know, especially around uh, VBS or or um, children's Sunday school ministry, we hear that. Are you sure? Have you tried? I mean, a lot of people haven't tried. I didn't think I was uh, gifted in that area until as, as a young newlywed Bible school student, my wife and I decided, okay, we're going to teach fourth grade Sunday school class. And we signed up and we became the fourth grade Sunday school class teachers for our church. And I did most teaching. Linda was there to support me. And that's where, where I kind of just started cutting my teeth in ministry was just fourth grade Sunday school. And it was awesome. It was awesome for me. I don't know. I hope it was awesome for them. So get involved. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, but maybe you don't think your personality is, you know, oh, I'm not really a, a people person. Uh, so hospitality is probably not an area for me. Are you sure? Can you smile? Can you say hello? Can you hand out a bulletin? Hey, you can make coffee. There's a built-in barrier there. You just, they're over there, you're over here. 
That's a great place, maybe, if you're not a people person, but you want to try out and see if you're hospitable. The point is that there are, there are areas that you can serve, that you can jump in and try, even for a time, and to see. And I'll add this little caveat. After you've done it for a little while, if you, if you decide to do that, by the way, if you do want to, I know Jennifer's out in the, uh, out there in the, in the, uh, yeah, the auditorium. Uh, not the auditorium. We're in the auditorium. The foyer, the other part. Uh, she's out there at a table, and we're looking for help for teaching Sunday school for, for the summer. So hop out. Give it a try. But I'll say this. After you've done it for a little while, right, humbly ask those around you for honest feedback about whether or not they think you're gifted in that area. <laughs> because it could be you're not, okay? And so just hate for people to be striving in areas they're not gifted in. All right, moving on to our final verse and, and really to the point of the whole matter for Paul, the, the point of, of the purpose of spiritual gifts. Verse 12, Paul says this, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Seek to abound for the edification of the church. A number of weeks ago, Pastor Ben gave us this equation, love plus spiritual gifts equals spiritual edification. Love plus spiritual gifts equals edification. I think he actually gave it to us as spiritual gifts plus love. But we've got love and then spiritual gifts, so we went that way. Um, but we see the same principle here bookending our passage. Pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, and then abound for the edification of the church. Seek to abound for that. And we, we seek to abound for the edification of the church when, when our love for each other, for one another, and our spiritual giftedness come together. When building up the body of Christ becomes our purpose and our aim. That word edify or edification in the Greek is a, is a construction term for building. A building, Paul uses it in a spiritual sense when he uses it in the New Testament. And it, it's made up, it's a compound word made up of two words. Uh, the second is, is doma, meaning roof. And so you get this picture of roof. And, and then oikos, meaning house or household. The way that the New Testament authors use um, oikos, isn't really referring to just a, a house building, especially Paul and Peter. No, they use it to refer to a household, and specifically when they refer to the household of God. Paul also uses it when he's writing to Titus in reference to the family or families. And then we see in, in 1 Timothy, as Paul's writing to Timothy in chapter 3, he says this, that he has written to him so that he will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The idea of conducting ourselves in the household of God, that's what we see here, where we are to seek the building up of the households. Brothers and sisters, this is all a part of the gospel, God's gracious gifts bestowed on us who do not deserve it, but that he gives us for his glory. God has given each of you, each of us, a, a divinely appointed spiritual gift. And they're incredible. They are not for show. They are not for you to make much of yourself. No, they are, they are for His glory, for the edification of the church. Because there may be a wide variety of gifts that we might have, but they all have the same purpose. For the building up and the strengthening of the body of Christ so that we might grow together as a family here under this roof at Valley Bible Church. And so a lesson from the verse, seek to abound for the edification of the church. 
seek to abound for the edification of the church. And seriously, this, this should be our goal in everything that we do, whether it's the exercise of our spiritual gifts or using our talents, whatever that is, whatever it is that we do, we, we ought to be seeking to abound for the edification of the church, the building up of the church. That doesn't just mean here on Sunday mornings. It does mean here on Sunday mornings. There's lots of opportunities to serve, but there are other areas, life groups throughout the week, even outside of the church, because discipleship doesn't start in the church. Discipleship starts with sharing the gospel with people who have never professed the name of Christ. There are those whom God is calling who are not yet a part of the family. We're called to share the gospel with them. Just as the Apostle Paul said to the, to the Colossians in Colossians 1, 28-29, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man, not just Christians, but admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which work might, mightily works within me. Paul says he, he does these things so that he might present every man complete in Christ. Perhaps a coworker, a member of your family, a, a neighbor, someone you meet on the street. I don't know, but it, when you see those people, is it your desire to present that person mature in Christ and to look for opportunities for us to do that? Yes, most of the spiritual gifts are going to be edifying in the church, but maybe God has gifted you in an area of evangelism that you don't know about. God has called us all to that task and all to many tasks, but he has gifted some of us specifically for certain things. And so we ought to exercise those. And I, perhaps you're here this morning, you don't know Christ as your Savior. We desire that for you. We would desire for you to know Christ. And we would encourage you to believe in Jesus even today. Perhaps you have questions. Grab me, grab Ben or Chris or, or one of the elders or, or one of the Sunday school teachers or, or a deacon. Grab someone and ask them how you might know Christ even today. We would love to talk with you about that. And I'll invite the worship team to come uh, forward as we prepare for the Lord's table. I think it's a fitting time for us to. We've been talking about spiritual gifts, and of course we only have spiritual gifts, these, this supernatural, divinely enabled gifting, because, because we have received the greatest gift, the gift of Christ. It is also... Because of the blood of Christ that we are unified together. We are all individuals. We're unique. We have a variety of gifts as we've seen. But we all have our own idiosyncrasies and characteristics. Really the thing that brings us together in common is our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ and his shed blood for us. And so we see that as we come together um, in, in our time of communion. And if you are uh, just visiting us for the first time um, or you're new here, from another church, uh, you know, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you're a part of the family. We invite you to the table. Uh, this is also a time that you can share with us. Let's let's pray to close our service, and then we'll uh, read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25, and partake together, and then close with song. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Lord, especially as we're about to um, partake of, of the Lord's table together, the symbols of, of the bread remembering his body and the Jews remembering his blood shed for us, looking forward to, to his return, something that we do over and over as we, as we wait in anticipation for, 
Christ to return to make all things new. Lord, we, we pray that you would work mightily, Lord, through your word, through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, would you reveal to those who may be here this morning, who don't know how you've gifted them for your glory in the church, would you demonstrate that to them, show that to them, Lord, so they might know, so they might be able to serve in those capacities. And Lord, if there are those who aren't serving, Lord, would you help us to find ways for them to serve even in the church out of their giftedness, that we might be built up together as a body of Christ, as a family, a family from whom, for whom you sent your son, for whom he died and shed his blood for us on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen.